Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. Welcome to On The Verge. Season 2 is in full swing, and today we are going to work on getting your physical game and your mental game tied together, understand why they're tied together, so that you can bring the best of yourself to the game, to the office, wherever you need it, you'll have it. So joining me today, if we had to go over all of her degrees, the podcast would be seven hours long. So we're just going to say that she's excessively trained in in physical training, nutrition, and psychology. Tiffany Brady. Tiff, how are you today? I'm great. Rich, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. So you, um, you've started, I first met you a long time ago. I was at Gaylord Opryland. And we discussed about the sports psychology piece. Yes. And then we had another piece, which was the nutrition piece. And up until that, maybe not even at that point, did I realize how intertwined they are. Mm. Because mental toughness, you can't just design, I'm going to be mentally tough today. It's a day-to-day training that provides you with what you need when you need it the most. And one of the famous Navy SEAL statements is you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to the lowest level of your training. Uh. But one of the most important things that I want to get out of, of our conversation today is when does the, the nutrition piece kick in the most? Is it the before, like the night before, the morning before, or right before the event? Is it the most important to be properly nourished and hydrated? You know, I I have to relate that to what you were just saying about preparation mentally, physically. You know, that your fundamentals are in check, that your mental skill set is in check. And to me, it's the confidence and the consistency of preparation. So I'd have to go with the night before, right? Because right 
in those moments you're building up to and you're nourishing your mind and your body and your physical prowess. And if you don't have a consistent pre-game routine related to nutrition, you're constantly questioning, did I get the right fuel? Am I going to bonk out? Am I going to be hydrated? Am I going to be overhydrated? Right? So it's that consistency of preparation, and you should never be trying new things the night before. Mm-hmm. So I think it's about going into that knowing you're giving your body exactly what it needs. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to question it. And then, of course, you have to carry that through the day of and, and the morning of. But sure. I think that you, know, you you can't wait till the last minute and then cram for the test. Yeah, no, no, no <laughs> doubt. I think that... To me, one of the most important things that I learned, maybe I was about 30, and I was working out with a guy named Scott Reel. And he, he's the guy who's the, that trains basketball player Brandon Wright. He went to Brentwood Academy. and We just got along, and I started to realize that if, I don't, if I'm not hydrated and nourished mm. pre, before, you can't catch up once it's gone. No, no. And that's the thing that I was baffled by is that there's no such thing as – um, cramming for the test, so to speak. And that was important. And then the mental toughness piece that training provides. And those are the kind of areas that we're going to delve into. So when you think of the downsides in performance, and this is like in hole 12 to 14 in golf, we've, there's been a ton of testing that the junior players really struggle hole 12 to 14 with part of its fatigue and part of its lack of hydration, part of its lack of nutrition. But how much does hydration and nourishment affect decision-making under pressure? Well, our brain uses up 80% of our calorie intake, right? So if you're not hydrated, if you've ever looked at an image and those of you listening, Google it, a dehydrated brain versus a fully hydrated brain, even 2% dehydration. The activation of that brain and memory and decision-making, to your point, Mm -hmm. and just the mental acuity that allows us to perform at our highest level from a focus and attention standpoint is drastically depleted. So I think hydration is certainly there. And if you think about it, and I was talking about this last week, the, the word carbohydrate is a hydration macronutrient. There is water in carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. So if you're not eating the right balance of nutrients, the right types at the right times, that's also giving you the energy and the water that you need to be mm-hmm. fully optimal in terms of your functioning so when when you think of because i know that blood sugar and like nutrition play a different role in performance failure Mm. versus hydration what are the signs when it comes to your competing brain Mm. that you're dehydrated what are some of the things that you're going to notice outside Um, of just having a dry mouth fogginess right mental fog so if you just find yourself struggling to to focus so Mm. specifically a golfer you know is Am I being distracted by what I call irrelevant cues, the crowd, the weather, the opponents Mm -hmm. that you're playing with? Um, You just can't find yourself in that zone in terms of the the mental space. Um, I think just fatigue from a physical standpoint, like you said, not just that thirsty feeling. Oftentimes we don't even 
know that we're dehydrated. I mean, thirst doesn't come till much later. Yeah. Isn't it like five out of is the five out of ten mark? It's like right. the halfway point or slightly past halfway and point. And then like you said, you can't catch up at yeah. that point. It's, yeah. I always call it staying ahead of hunger instead of chasing it. Yeah. You gotta stay ahead of it and eat on a schedule because when you're in those moments of competition or a crazy work day or traveling you don't always remember to eat, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because you're just so consumed with other things. A lot of my clients have to set an eating schedule just to remind themselves to eat because yeah. it takes them out of the equation. Hmm. I think it's that's really where it's going next is like, especially with kids, and I notice it with girls more than boys, but still it's maybe 60, mm-hmm. 40, uh, the, the, the nerves of competing make them not want to eat. Oh, sure, yeah. And... That like I coach, I can't eat. Coach, I can't. I mean, I get it. I'm mean, every event that we play. So I really, can't, I can't get any. I'm like, you have to eat. Mm. How do you? How can we convince? Because there's a lot of kids that listen to this. A lot of the the best junior players in the state are listening to this. What do you got to do to move past the nerves? Is there any particular foods that are better to kind of kickstart that? Or where where do you? It's mm. it's so important to get these people to eat but they're not. Absolutely. Well, I think one is practicing it just like anybody else or any other skill that you have to not try something the day of a big match or Mm -hmm. competition or tournament, do it in practice. So as a coach, you're almost practicing what works and what doesn't. So try this snack, try an apple and peanut butter. Doesn't feel great or you don't feel the energy change. Try a banana instead of an apple. Try Mm -hmm. a Gatorade. Try a protein shake. Maybe something more liquid would be more beneficial Mm. than a solid. But I think it's just about trial and error, and that goes back to that confidence. Once you find something that works and you feel confident and you see how it impacts your performance, then you're going to want to do it again. Mm -hmm. right? You change your shot, you change your swing structure, your fundamentals, and you hit a great shot, you're going to do it again. Mm -hmm. No (laughs) doubt. So with the food, I think you got to just keep practicing it almost and figure out what works for you. Interesting. And that's where, like, your new position at at Elite is – this you had you have all three of your specialties combined into one there with the training the nutrition and the psychology and how they all intertwine and i would imagine being in a place like that that is more built around high achievers that it's a lot easier to get your message across Um, but when you look over your career and you started in the psychology world you've now hit all the other three parts there's four parts there's the athleticism and the talent of the game whatever it is that you're playing and then there's the training and then there's the fueling and then there is the mental edge that's required to win you started in the mental world and you found out that i'm interested did you find out that there has to be more to this than just the mental and that's what spurred you to the next level or where did your where did your career spiral into all of them instead of maybe where you started, which was the sports psychology piece? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think for, for me when I started, I would have said, oh, 90% of the game's mental. And I, del- I still do believe that a high percentage of success, once everybody's on the same playing mm-hmm. field, yeah. so to speak, of physical capabilities, that the mental is that extra edge. But I do think the root of all of it is nutrition. Because I think if you're not fueling your body appropriately, you're not going to peak out physically. You're not going to be able to put on lean muscle. You're not going to be able to recover. You're not going to be able to hit the gym as hard the next day. You're not going to be able to deal with the physical demands of the training 
from a mental standpoint, we just talked about dehydration and fueling your body from a mental standpoint and the way that impacts our decision-making. And the other thing is you, you have to eat all day. Yeah. It's a constant, right? Physical training lasts maybe 45 minutes an hour for most of us that aren't elite athletes. We hit the gym, we're done. We check the box. True. You got to eat all day, every day. Yeah. So I think if you're not putting that piece as a priority, the others will never be maximized. So I think that's where I have kind of honed in on that for a lot of folks. And I I sense that maybe the most important piece while following your journey is that um, I also thought that once you're physical, like my golf talent, my Mm. swing and my ability to hit the right, select the right shot, the right yardage, the right trajectory, and my ability to trust that were the only two major factors that mattered. And I think a vast majority of people still actually believe that, mm-hmm. that they're maybe a little bit afraid to accept the fact that there might be way more to it than just how well you swing it or how well you putt it and how well your mind is ready for the moment. Because I learned quickly that I definitely did not understand like, when should I eat my carbs? When should I eat my proteins? And when should I absolutely bail out of sugar, which is probably most of the time. But there are sugars in everything now. Sure. So it's more of, I realized that I was crashing in that 12 to, whole, 12 to 14 hole range where I couldn't, like, I would always make bad decisions and I would my ang- like my anger in myself for hitting a bad shot. I'd, I'd lose my ability to, to forgive myself and move on. I would hold on to the failure, which I wouldn't do for like the first 12 holes. And I'm like, what is that? And that's almost always low blood sugar, wouldn't you say? Is that that's the major indicator of ang- like the the burning anger that of making a mistake that otherwise normally wouldn't rattle you at all? I would say, you know, potentially. I mean, if you look at the macronutrients, just scientifically speaking, especially in golf, because it is a lower intensity type of exercise, mm-hmm. you're using, you know, you are using fats and carbohydrate, but I think it all comes down to just fuel in general, and carbohydrates tend to be our primary source of energy, yeah. um, especially that glycogen, like you said, that, that's giving us that more immediate source of fuel, so probably and then like you got so many people now on these low carb keto crazy you mm. know diets that they're not giving their body the appropriate type of fuel and they're you know constantly trying all these new things and trendy things instead of just finding a good rhythm yeah you know? and and obviously that's led to you where you are right now mm. which is the how it all ties together so that it's the the doing it right, learning how to train and train appropriately, and then recovering correctly, and then the cycle of trying to be the best that you can be. And it's funny, we'll always, I mean, my job's got it, your job's got it, everybody's looking for a shortcut, mm-hmm. but there are no shortcuts. No. Talk to us about how you address the human condition to not want to suffer when in all actuality, it's the suffering, as in training, like pushing yourself past what you don't want to do, then past what you never thought you could do, and keep moving forward. How do you go about helping people move past that fear? It is just fear, essentially. It is. You know, I think that people, I think people are afraid if they 
try it and fail, then then it's going to have a lasting impact on their confidence and ability, you know, to perceive the challenge and the stress. And I mean, stress is the perception that we don't have the capability to address the demand in front of us. If we have that confidence, there is no stress, mm-hmm. right? So, but stress is a mental manifestation. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. You can't measure it. It's there because you believe it's there. If you believe you can achieve it, I don't mean to be the rhyming game over here, but if you believe that you can achieve this demand, then the stress is drastically reduced. Yeah. Well, Peyton Manning talks about that all the time. Pressure is just lack of preparation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And most people don't get that. They think it comes the other way. Mm. And that's, that, that's, that's my favorite part to have to coach the kids through is that you have to prepare to be great, even if you're not great yet. Because if you can build it in your mind and you can keep finding out that you can achieve past what you've done before, because there's no such thing as perfect, there's actually no limit to how good you can be. So you can just keep progressing and you have every reason to believe that you can access what you need to access if you train for it. Well, it's adaptation. Yeah. You have to experience stress to get stronger. That's the whole concept of weight training. Weight training is physical stress. You're stressing your neuromuscular system so that it adapts and gets stronger. If you constantly pick up the 12 pound dumbbells to do curls you're never going to adapt that because your body becomes acclimated and you stay in just status quo. Yeah. Mentally, nutritionally, professionally, personally, you have to keep pushing the threshold. You have to keep challenging and adapting. It's that adaptation response system, right? So, mm-hmm. that, But if we stay in stress too long, that's when it becomes catastrophic. Interesting. Right? Because we can't just stay in fight flight forever. Mm-hmm. And so many people, I think, live their life in constant stress that then they break down and never recover. Yeah, so true. Right. So it's that cortisol dump, that constant stress that you then are never recovering and thus you're never progressing. You mm-hmm. actually start to decline. Interesting. So there's like that happy medium there, right? Yeah, it's like that's like the job security for you. Mm-hmm. You know, is the fact that you you get people who don't know the importance of the struggle, then they embrace the struggle, and then they OD on the struggle because the two, you know, that's there is right. it's kind of a strange. <laughs> there's no that's such embrace thing. the suck, right? Yeah, that's embrace the, the suck, <laughs> Phil. That's right. And to me, that's the that's got to be what it is that keeps your job entertaining. Because it's nice to see people evolve from fear of the struggle to embracing it to like wanting more of it, especially when you start to see success off of the first two phases. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, wow, my body hurts. But after I kind of wake up and shake it off, I feel way better. And then that feeling way better sneaks up on the psyche because it changes your posture, changes how your body language, it changes your physiology, actually. And then you start to interact differently with others. You practice, you, even if you haven't changed your practice habits yet, you're faster, you're paying attention more, you're listening to what the coach has got to say, a little more in tune, and then you win. And then you start to think, oh, if a, well, if six aspirin 
we're good. Maybe 38 will be awesome. <laughs> now, wait a minute. <laughs> There's a point of diminishing In return. returns. No, that's right. right. And that's where the people like David Goggins has got his whole group of people. The Navy SEAL guy who you know wrote the book Can't Hurt Me. And his training is like, it's a, not, not normal to say the least. No. Um, and he's the he's trying to push people past that level into a new level of mental toughness that I'm not quite sure that everybody's wired for, but I mean, to each his own. But at the end of the day, what's the, what was the piece for you? Is it the training, the nutrition, or the psychology that really spurred on the other two pieces, whichever one of the one that's the most important, that has interested you to be so in tune to the performance of humans? Is it the nutrition, is it the psychology, or is it the training that really piqued mm-hmm. your interest to the point where you start your own business and then let it evolve to being a part of possibly the, the most powerful organization when it comes to, to training and orthopedics in the, in the whole city of Nashville for sure? Definitely. I still have to go back to nutrition again. I just think it's the, the foundation of everything we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was joking with my mom the other day. I said the next book I write is going to co- be called Eat Shit and Die. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's just true. Like, we are what we eat, whether yeah. you like it or not. You put low-quality fuel in the tank. That's what's coming out mentally, physically, in relationships, in your professional life. Mm-hmm. You know, I do a lot with executive training and energy management. And these folks that are just worked to the bone and they're traveling three and four days a week and sleeping in hotels and eating out every meal and staying up till 10 o'clock with bottles of wine and meals that are not the best in terms of nutritional value. And then they try to get up and go to work the next day and and make the bottom line, you know, and I think that we just don't realize how much, how we fuel impacts so much of what we do. Yeah. So true. So true. I've always found it interesting when it comes to training is that when you, when you, when you're training and your body knows that it's training, it doesn't like, Oh, it might like a glass of wine, but it doesn't all of a sudden the body rejects two glasses of wine. Mm -hmm. It rejects bad food. It starts to like fight off sugars. What I sense It's like all of a sudden, if I'm training really hard, I don't have any desire to have a cinnamon roll or I have a desire to have the second glass of wine or I don't have any desire because my body is not asking for it. Cause instead of maybe being in a place of, I don't want to say depressed, but maybe I'm not in the mood for optimum performance mode. Mm-hmm. It's easy to fall in love with that second totally, glass of wine. Totally. And then when you, when you are, you don't want the things that bring you down. You're in a different mission. The the Well, the energy you're getting is from the high of training and feeling yeah. good mm-hmm. and progressing and seeing yourself change and your body and your mind adapt. So we get addicted to that instead of other things. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime, you know, addiction is just about filling a void. So when you filled it with something else and something productive then you don't have to fill it with those other things. So true. Well, you, you were an athlete all of your, your youth, still are an athlete, but how much did the, the competing and learning how to compete play a role in your business as it pertains to competing against everybody else that's doing what you do? Absolutely. And why is it so important to never stop competing in life? I don't think that's the way that we grow. 
right? If we mm. get comfortable, if we stop learning and stop trying to better ourselves, whether it's, again, mentally, physically, professionally, spiritually, personally, what what else is there? You know, mm. I could... I could be content where I am now, but then I never realize what I could possibly achieve. Yeah. So I think this having that competitive mindset and that constant desire to, to do more and better. Now it's served me in good and bad ways yeah. too, right? Because I think sometimes you have a hard time not wanting that for everyone else. So you project those same expectations often on a client or a friend or a family member to say, you know, why can't you do this, that, or the other? But I think that that also inspires other people, you mm -hmm. know? So to try to always project that to my audience or my clients or my, you know, my, the people in my life that I love to show them that you can keep mm -hmm. progressing and growing. We don't have to just stop because we turned 60 or yeah. because, you know, we had an injury, you know, mm -hmm. and fighting through that. So true. But I do find that different mindset of people that have never been an athlete. It's almost like they don't know what it feels like to be in discomfort. Yeah. Like you were talking about like pushing your thresholds physically, getting out of breath or being sore or knowing what it feels like to really be on the verge, yeah. <laughs> you know, of breakdown. Yeah. But I think until you step to that edge... You know, and then that's my job as a coach to either push or pull you back off the edge yeah. of the cliff. Right? Yeah, yeah, well, I just tell people all the time, <laughs> I spend a lot of time trying to balance if I'm going to be Oprah or Dr. Phil. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're going to be the cheerleader or the, you know, it's oh. the character that sticks. That's exactly <laughs> right. Am I going to be Bob Knight or am I going to be Oprah, you know? And I, I think that that's like the coaching piece. Like you talk about projecting like what you know that they can do, but maybe they don't know that they can do. And the, the, the coaching part I'm interested to hear about is what are, who are your mentors and or the people that have really helped shape you abil your ability to coach very different personalities so that if you find somebody that has no confidence in themselves, that you can 5% at a time build them because they can't handle the fire hose water that you can bring when you're with an elite athlete. Totally. The ability for you to adapt to your clients, I'm sure, was one of the more interesting pieces for you. Talk to us about your mentors and where you learned your style. Sure. Well, when I was, I would say probably late high school, my dad gave me, call, they called me coach, John Wooden's book. And I read it in the pyramid of success and how he defines competitive greatness as just giving a hundred percent of what you have. And that to me levels that playing field of Everybody doesn't have the same 100%. Mm -hmm. But if you go out there and you give 100% that day, every day, you can't ever say you weren't successful because you put everything you have out there. So and true. takes away that social comparison piece, which I think we all do, but especially as kids, mm -hmm. youth athletes, we, oh, I'm not as fast as him or I'm not as strong as him. Okay, but maybe he's not as tall as you, you know, That's or right. maybe he can't do the long distance runs, but you can't do the sprints, you know? So it's, you have different skill sets, but as long as you're giving a hundred percent and you're on, on a team, right? You have to share that load, even if it's an individual sport, mm -hmm. 
you're still competing in youth sports as a team. So you compete individually and as a team. But, you know, I think that's just about knowing what you have and what you are given and the gifts that you bring to the table and to mm-hmm. your life. And if you can go to bed at night and say, you know what, I gave everything I had today. And tomorrow that same 100% might look different. That's right. <laughs> that's the most important thing for people out there to realize is that we're a living organism. And some days our 100% is better than it's ever been. And some days it's not as good as it once was, but it was all that you had that day. Absolutely. And that's a, that's a unique trick because in my opinion, this is the, the next place I want to go is the word intimidation. I find to be unique because I find that the, the, like Tiger Woods, he never did anything to intimidate anybody. He didn't try to hurt anybody. He was so good that when you walked on the, the tee with Tiger, you're like, I'm so insignificant compared to you. And I try to get people to understand, like, we're going to try to train so that people recognize that we're not ever going to go through the motions, that if they're going to beat us, they're going to have to give 100% all the way. And our, you know, and most of our society, and especially in junior golf and in, maybe even in the, the lower end of college golf, most people are waiting for the other person to screw up, not to go out there and try to win. They're hoping that somebody else loses. And play on the defensive instead of yeah. on the offense. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in trying to get people to understand that it, what is intimidating is to know that there's no give up. And like, well, I know that when we play the Ensworth Tigers in golf, we're going to have to play our best because even if they're not playing their best, they have strategies in place. They got mental skills to get them to understand how to play their less than best stuff. So we're over prepared for everything, for when things are going good, when we're playing our stock game and when we don't have our best game and how they need to be quick to adapt and understand who they are today and not take it personal just because we're having a, our rhythm seems to be off. doesn't mean that we can't play a little safer, a little more conservative and play for pars and ask our opponents to make birdies to beat us. And I, I, I'm a, just a huge believer. Like I tell the guys all the time and the girls on the golf team, let's make sure we shake the hand of the person that beat us, not look in the mirror to see the person that beat us. That's a great analogy. Yeah. And to me, so when, when, I, when you think of the word intimidation, not as in like somebody's trying to physically browbeat you, sure. but the intimidation piece of training and everybody else is aware that you're a different beast what does that mean to you? And especially how you think about it as the trainer of that. I always think of it as, as swagger, right? If it's how you walk out there, how you carry yourself, how you, um, like you said, how you deal with failure and getting beat and losing with honor mm-hmm. and learning that growth mindset of you were better than me today and that's going to push me harder instead of make me curl up and fear failure. Yeah. So, you know, just walking out with your shoulders back, people are immediately intimidated. And I think that's what Tiger does, even now when he's not really winning. Yeah. But it, you watch him and you don't, you don't want to play with him. Mm-mm. Because he's, he's out there with his stone-cold intimidation stare. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of funny. Like, I would say that there... It used to be that before the tournament even started, Tiger was winning. That's not the case anymore. But if Tiger gets in contention Saturday afternoon, I still don't think anybody likes the idea of having to play 
Totally. It used to be every day. Now they're like, it waits for the situation to be right. And then if the situation gets right, they're like, oh, God. Like the Masters. Like you could sense this past year at the Masters that because he was in the mix coming down the stretch for the first time in a long time, at first they're kind of like, oh, we'll see if he's still got it. Oh, yes, he still has it. It wasn't because he wasn't any good. His body was so physically broken totally. that he couldn't actually do it any any longer. But now that he's back and repaired, he hasn't lost anything. And then to watch him fall apart one by one by one, it was like the old days. I was kind of like, except it just started on Sunday, Sunday about <laughs> noon sure. instead of Thursday at eight a.m. But it's it's a it's body language, you know. It, it's it's that old you know cliche of dressing for the job you want mm-hmm. and you walk in there with the confidence even before you have the job that you own that job yeah. and just telling yourself those things and believing those things and putting that that suit on mm-hmm. it puts you in a different mindset and a different confidence and you exude that confidence you know versus walking in there already defeated mm-hmm. you know and i think that's where when an underdog pulls through it's because they've walked out there believing and and acting like that they're they were playing you know their second string and not the national champions yeah you know? so true it's interesting how certain teams rise up and fall down depending on who they're playing you know that's the thing that always befuddles me about certain it's almost historical like there are certain schools like duke basketball that you know they're going to bring it every single game. And if you're the Citadel, you're going to get smacked by 50, and North Carolina is going to come in, and you're going to get the same kind of intensity. And they're willing to fight even in a double overtime like it was at the very beginning of the game. They bring it, and they always bring it. Whereas other schools, I'm not going to name it a school that I would think are chokers, or, but there are other teams that when they're playing Fordham, they mail it in and they barely win exactly. or could get knocked off. And then they they try to rise to the occasion and Louisville, Kentucky rolls in, you know, and then, you know, Kentucky's the number one team in the country and Louisville's like, well, this is our arch rival. And then they're 14 and 12 and then they play the best game of the year. And that always makes the coach scratch their head and like, huh, I wonder what would happen if we played with this kind of intensity all the time. Absolutely. Well, like – Vandy beat LSU the other night, right? I mean, they have an amazing talent on that team. You can't just beat LSU. Yeah, that's right. Right? But you've got to replicate. And that's what separates, right? It's replication of performance. You know, the ability to replicate flow, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, the zone. Oh, being yeah. in the zone. And that's just, the deeper. That's the deepest. Yeah. That's the fun. That's the fun <laughs> ride. That's right. Where everything's in slow motion and you yeah. don't even remember playing the game. But, yeah, replication to your point, like the Dukes and the Alabama footballs and the whoever, that just every time they go out there, they are putting the same game together and they don't think yeah. about who they're playing. They're just playing their game. So true. So true. And to me, that is – that's the secret sauce. It almost seems like it's a culture. Mm-hmm. You know, there are certain coaches that demand it all the time. And then, and that's just their nature. Coach K, you know, Nick Saban. And then, like, to me, a team that does kind of strike me, of course, it's the new coach, too, is LSU's football program. They've notoriously f- laid eggs mm. in their biggest games for quite some time since, well, since Saban was the coach there. Right. Essentially. And then, for whatever reason, whether it was – Ogeron was able to really actually change the culture or something happened within the team 
they played like I've never seen any college team play. And they went from perennially losing the big game to dominating the big game. And I'm going to be interested to see if that's a culture thing to carry on or maybe they just had the most amount of talent we've seen in a while and they couldn't even mess it up with that much talent. That's going to be interesting to see for me. It is, and I, but I think it does. You know, you go back to your point about that coach. I think a coach can make a huge difference, and sometimes it's about that coach being able to inspire mm-hmm. and put together those skill sets in a unique way that makes those players their best to mm-hmm. identify weaknesses and strengths and put people in positions to maximize their strengths. Mm-hmm. Because oftentimes just a different position or a different play or a different structure of you know how you're putting a team out on the field and what you're saying to them and yeah. the motivational components, the carrot versus the stick, and figuring out what's working best. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the coach can play a role in that. I mean, talent is talent, but – you know, to John Wooden's credit on his pyramid of success, the centerpiece of his pyramid is not talent. It's heart. Mm-hmm. Because if you take out that middle piece, it's like a game of Jenga, <laughs> right? You take that middle piece out. If you take if you take the heart out and you've got good supporting components around it, you can still stand, right? But Or talent out. But you have heart and you have support and you have teamwork and you have discipline and you have work ethic. That, that structure will stay. But you take that talent out and you don't have anything else around it, yeah. it's falling real fast. Yeah, real fast is right. The final part I wanted to talk about when it comes to your profession is injury. You, you've come, you're coming off of a surgery not that long ago. It's mm-hmm. not abnormal for as we get older. We break down a little bit. <laughs> right. Knee, shoulder, elbow, wrist, back. For me, it's my back mostly. Uh, playing a sport bent over and rotating and creating a ton of speed is not necessarily the wisest thing for L5 and S1, but at the end of the day, it is what it is. But learning when you're hurt versus when you're injured, when are you in pain versus when are you hurting is critical. And then for the kids out there, they want to come back too early. And it's like as you get older, you're afraid to start back up again. It's a very unique mindset. How do you help people come back from surgery and or an injury that takes them away or could essentially lose their confidence in themselves, especially an athlete? Yeah, yeah, and I I struggle with it still. I mean, just that wanting to continue to push and believe I'm the 18-year-old athlete that I was and at almost 40 I'm not and uh, just being able to train smarter and not harder. Mm -hmm. And I think so for our adult listeners out there I would say to just start to recognize that you know maybe running is not the best thing for you anymore if you've had a knee surgery or you've had some hip issues or low back pain pounding on the pavement Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you can't be active and it's hard to swallow to think that may not be something I can do again but what I would ask is is it worth pushing that threshold and getting hurt again and being laid up for, and that's what I say to myself every now, every day I wake up and want to go for a run and I have gone and I'll do it in small doses. But I say, if I go today and I end up hurting my back, herniating my disc again, is it going to be worth the five miles that I ran? Mm -hmm. So I think just creating some space between the, the desire and the reaction and really thinking through the consequences of that. And for 
those kiddos that want to come back early too. It's like if I take one more week, mm -hmm. I can be here all season. If I push one day early, I might be out the whole season. That's right. And so I think you just have to realize there's so much time in your young career <laughs> yeah. that one week in a year is not even going to be a thought. But if you take that day early and you're out for that senior year season and you miss the state championship because of that, so just know it, that sometimes time is the best thing that, that you can do for yourself. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, to your point on the flip side of that, I think we we do – sometimes just listen to fear instead of listening intuitively to your body and knowing that it is resilient mm -hmm. and to be able to just gradually push back into things and test them. Like I said, maybe I'll go do a two mile run and see how I feel. Mm -hmm. And if I feel great, I give it a week and then maybe I'll do three miles. Right. But to just mm -hmm. to rip the bandaid off and be like, Ooh, I feel better today. I'm going to go run 10 miles. You know, I think that's what we have to be smarter as we get older about how to just gradually progress back into things. And it's almost like the athlete has to learn the hard way one time. Oh, yeah. You're like, yeah. I can still do it. And I've learned that <laughs> over this last year and a half. Of just, you know, I'm like, oh, I could go do that. Then I'm crying and pouting and complaining. And I shouldn't have done that. And yep. then I go do it again, you know. So but, true. So. Well, you just embarked. You finished your endeavor slightly before I finished mine, coming off my second book. And you, you've now written a book. Talk to us about the about your book, where people can get it, and, like, what's, the, what's writing a, what's the process of writing a book like for TIFF Breeding? So, the book is called The Metabolic Makeover, so it is a nutrition and fitness um, heavy book. It's mm -hmm. more of a workbook type of approach, so there's a lot of self-guided uh, reflections and exercises. I'm, you know, I'm a lifelong educator, so I want people mm -hmm. to learn how to feed their body and not just give them the answers to the test. So mm -hmm. through the book, it does attempt to help you engage in the process and learn about macronutrients and fitness and recovery and all of these things we've talked about today, the mindset piece. Um, and you can get it on my website, which is uh, workwithdrtiff.com or Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely pick it up, and I'd love feedback. Um, but the process was... What, you know, I'd say it was easier than I thought it would be. Interesting. You know, it, once I start writing, it's just, I realize that that's just what I do. Yeah. I was just telling a story. I was just talking to the client I talk to every day and mm -hmm. answering the questions that I answer every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the hard part for me is to to tell it in simple terms you know I think when we know so much about something because we love it and we do it every day it's hard to to say it in in words that are digestible yeah you know and so that was a good challenge for me to not write in the sciencey yeah, academic you know yeah. like nobody wants to read a research paper so true uh, but you do have to back what you say too right you just want to always be able to say listen I'm not just saying this because I believe it but is there's research to back this up and we know these things mm -hmm. to be true. Um, and I, I do look forward to writing another book, you know, and I don't know which direction it'll go, but I, I just feel like that that's my purpose that I'm supposed to educate and empower and motivate and coach and 
inspire people to be healthy in in their mind and their body. It would almost seem to me, not that I know anything about what will be going on inside your head, but it would almost seem to me because you wrote it about nutrition and that's your hallmark of what you believe. We've not, we've discussed that, that you would be able to almost do volumes of performance. Now that you understand that the most important Mm -hmm. part is under control. Now we can move toward possibly the training piece or the mental piece because you're both you're capable of that you know i don't i don't really know if i would tell you one's more important than the other when it comes to what would be second but i think that you could take all of the things that you have degrees in which is pretty impressive by the way and take the the nutrients the training and i think that probably makes the most sense be the training and how the training creates mental toughness and then if given talent whatever your talent level is, this allows you to maximize what you have. And it'll give you a nice, what I'd call a circular cycle that they could take those three books and and as they evolve in their talent, they would evolve in their diet, their workouts and their mental, their mental capabilities. And it would just constantly keep cycling. And obviously that would lead you to, you know, the 2.0 versions or the revised editions and whatever, because you're going to keep learning. Sure. But that just seems to me like there aren't many people that have as many gifts as you have, which is the main reason why I brought you on. Is like you're not just the, the, the nutritionalist and you're not just the trainer and you're not just the sports psych. You're all of them. And that's the cool thing is like you have the ability to I can I know that if I send somebody to you and I'm not quite sure what the problem is that. I'm not sending them for golf swing stuff. I'm sending them for everything else other than golf swing stuff. I feel quite certain that you're going to be able to diagnose it and start off with their problem and then weave all the other three things in. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where it would be a great place for you to to capitalize on your gifts for sure. I appreciate that. And it's, it's awesome to kind of get other people's thoughts on those things because you get so stuck in your own head as a practitioner of this is what I want to write about or what I feel led to write about now, but what, what do other people want to hear from me? Mm-hmm. You know, cause often you don't know what you don't know. That's right. <laughs> so true. So true. Well, as we shift to the second part of the show, which is we spend a lot of our time trying to be the best that we can be. And that generally drains the batteries. You can't do that all the time. We have to do things that fill our cup back up again. And generally speaking, those things are, the events that a large amount of people gather with the like-mindedness that you, it's an event and that recharges the soul, which is why live music and concerts never go away. And that's why 110,000 people can go to a Michigan or a Penn state or a Tennessee football game. And those are the things that people look forward to. And it's what makes people's lives full. It enriches them. When you think of your favorite sports teams and or sports players, who were they? Hmm. Well, sports teams wise, you know, I I probably have to I have to go with this LSU football team this last year was just hard to not get excited about. I yeah. mean, the domination and the energy and seeing Joe Burrow get, like, so excited, even at the very last touchdown. You know, you just get inspired when they get inspired. I think that's what I get so frustrated sometimes of watching teams that win. It's just like, eh, we won again. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't ever want to lose that passion. 
and that inspiration. And, you know, just the fact, to your point, of they just dominated no matter who they were playing. And the the consistency and the resilience uh, and the work ethic that they were obviously putting in when they didn't necessarily have all that talent. Yeah. The same team stepped out there sure. for the most part. Um, so that for me was definitely an inspiration. And then I think growing up with the women's soccer, when Mia Hamm was out there, mm-hmm. you know, the 99 women's team and just all that they did for the game of soccer. And yeah. because that was my passion and my sport, um, and still is, I think I always will remember that group and Brandy Chastain and, yeah. the, you know, ripping the shirt Her off and the have a side sports bra of hers. My mom got me, you know, it's just like <laughs> that, that was awesome. an inspiration, I think, to girls to um, break down some of the barriers. And I think a lot of them have been broken. I mean, oh, I'm yeah. envious in a lot of ways that I'm not a youth athlete now as a as a female, because I do think the opportunities are just so much more mm-hmm. um, than they were. And so I think that that team and just that core captain, you know, Mia Hamm and Brandy and all those sure. women on there was inspira- inspirational for sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a, such an, a positive talking point right now, because if you think about it, I don't think it's fair to say that Serena could beat Roger Federer if they were both at their peak. Mm. But I could not sure that I couldn't say that nobody's been better at their sport than Serena Williams has been. I still think that Tiger Woods is the greatest at his sport that I've ever seen anybody at their sport. But I almost think Serena has dominated both in longevity and in her peak than Michael Jordan. It's similar. But I think that Serena, holy cow, that is one impressive woman right Absolutely. there. Absolutely. And I would love to get your take on the state of female in sport. It's a very, it's a burgeoning conversation point. Uh, and some some of the girls, and it's interesting because it's not that much different than Chad Ojosinko for the Bengals or Terrell <laughs> Owens. There are some of them that are so tired of being suppressed that they, not only do they win, but they kind of flip you the bird while doing it to try to gain the the attention mm. that it deserves. And, and in some ways, the old, you know, the old adage of there's no such thing as bad attention. Right. You know, that, that's what's happening. I don't think anybody wants that, but I think that there's that degree of bringing awareness. And if I can't be good and bring awareness, then I'm going to do something to get your awareness because this team or these girls or this woman is so good and nobody's paying attention and it makes me mad. On your side of the street, being a woman... Where do you? What's your take on that scenario, and where do you think it's going to evolve to in the the immediate ten year future? Well, yeah, I do think to your point. I think that women have had to start doing some really drastic things to get attention. I mean, you look at some of these like Hope Solo situation, and mm-hmm. you know the women that are um, you know even like the CrossFit world where they're just almost like trying to be more masculine to get attention in yeah. the way that their physical body is and the types of weight training and things they're putting their body through that I don't know that are, are that healthy. Yeah. Um, and I'm not poo-pooing on CrossFit. I think it's yeah. a great fitness mechanism in, mm-hmm. in moderation like anything else. But I do think that then it becomes this messaging and almost this turnoff to some girls that don't want to 
go down that path? It's like, where do you fit and still kind of ride that line of feminism and, yeah. and competitiveness? Because there's, you know, so many that are going to these extremes and in order to compete, do you choose that route? Yeah. You know, so true. So it's hard to compete without sort of some extra help, <laughs> so yeah. to speak. And so I do wish it could be a, a little bit more natural. And I think men are probably in the same boat of having to use alternative mechanisms to compete. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it does make it hard yeah. I think, for girls to choose that path. Interesting. Interesting. When, if you, if you were to have to pick the, the, the best player between MJ Kobe or LeBron, you know, they're all, Ugh, they're similar, they're similar, but they're, they're different. <laughs> who would you, if you had the first pick of the all time draft, who would you take and why? I got to take LeBron. I think, I think his physical prowess. Now, of course, again, we go back to like Michael Jordan in his era wasn't a small Mm-mm. guy but everybody else was smaller yeah. i mean now you have so many supplements and strength training difference you know in terms of the volume and load and mechanisms but i just think he's just a beast <laughs> he really is and i've always said that you know i think that that lebron is like magic johnson and michael jordan together yes because he's the he's very unselfish you know it's he gets in some ways he gets criticized for being the teammate that's trying to get everybody involved and mj we just be like okay i've had enough of this just give me the just give me the ball and get out of my way sure and obviously you could argue that if he if he's not the greatest ever at it wilt chamberlain was but i mean one of those two guys was the most dominant give me the ball get out of my way and shut up type mindsets you know i had drew maddox on here uh early on and drew was kind of like you know Michael Jordan was in a, the greatest basketball player I've ever seen, but I don't know if I'd want to be on his team. Mm. LeBron makes you want to be on his team. Agreed. Nice guy. And I think Co- they all, I don't think any of them were you know, jerks. Yeah, terrible so to teammates. Speak. But, but I think, yeah, and I do think that he, you know, seems to have solid family ties and these things. I think just character maybe is, yeah. a, is a good word. And I think they all displayed character in their own ways. But, I think he's got just a really nice balance True. of, you know, what he's doing out there. And, um, but yeah, what a great group of guys. What a mean question for you to ask. Me. <laughs> <laughs> That's your more, job. There, there's more, there's more where that came from. Oh, when, uh, when you, when you are thinking about the, the greatest sporting event you've attended, what was the coolest game event that you went to see in person? And what was that feeling like of that level of greatness or excitement? We used to go every year to Atlanta to watch the Braves play. So my family would go. We'd go to Atlanta and St. Louis, see the Cardinals a few times in the summer and drive down and see the Braves. And We were actually at the Braves game, the longest game that I don't remember how many innings, 17 or uh-huh. something crazy. And I remember we went out to the car and took a nap because I was like <laughs> five years old or however old. And then we came back in they had because the, they had the fireworks and we wanted to see the oh, fireworks yeah. and all. So just the fact that I remember that, you know, I just being there. And now that it's still a historical 
uh, game yeah. to have been at. Oh, and yeah. Just the Braves. I mean, come on. That's just. I mean, everybody gives the Yankees a lot of the credit, but in the last in the last 25 years, it's I know that they haven't won as many championships as the Yankees and a couple other teams, but the domination that they've had in the National League, especially in the NL East, that's pretty unprecedented stuff. And they do it with a not necessarily the biggest stars. Obviously, when they were in their heyday, they had the greatest pitching staff ever, but never really like a, a murderer's row of hitters. They just blue collar beat you, yeah. and they played you know obviously the great pitching, but the Bravos. That's a that's a fun that's a fun time. It's amazing. What almost every time I interview somebody, they talk, they they always talk about something that they would do with their mom and their dad as mm. a, as a child, something that they never forget, and. Uh, that's what it's all about at the end of the day is totally. the experience. It's not just only about the game, but it's like all the other ingredients that go with it. Yeah. You know? And I was, you know, I, I haven't been to as many sporting events, professional sporting events. And I think part of it is because Nashville, really, I grew up here. I mean, we didn't really have, have any anything. professional sports until, uh, you know, last 10 years or so, you yeah. know, 15 years. So um, it was always kind of a on a vacation scenario, yeah, you know, so. but even with the Cardinals, like Ozzie Smith and, you know, the backflips and oh, yeah. all that. I mean, that was a great time. So I, I'm, I have, uh, I've been good friends with Bill DeWitt, who is the president of the St. Louis Cardinals. Okay. So we've, you know, and I've, I have, I have all of these baseball cards swirling in my head and I'm like, Hey, Bill, you know, you, you know, Joaquin Andujar, who was like my, my favorite Cardinals pitcher. And he's like, I just had dinner with him last week. Oh, oh my God, guys, how cool is that? <laughs> and just telling all, like being around all the, the stories yeah. that he's able to tell. And we, uh, as being part of the, the water company, Defiance Fuel, here in Nashville, uh-huh. yeah. we're the official water of the St. Louis Cardinals. So to be able to, really? to get the, to be able to, you know, introduce the water to him and he wasn't even a real water guy he didn't even really think that it was that big of a difference to then drink water that's got the science behind it the structured it is water is different i will it, say it's structured water so yeah. it's it's uh it's alive it's vibrating so that the water that you drink matches exactly the water that's inside your cells so your cells exchange what's inside it to purify what's inside the cells it recharges your batteries it's pretty remarkable science and so he it was a hundred degree day i worked in for nine hours that's a long lesson. Yes. So that was four that's hours a long of swing time work. With you. That's, that's a very long time with me. I pity the guy. I had to give him a discount <laughs> for, for intolerance. Yeah. But um, we, uh, he, he, he's like, whatever. What's this water's different? And I'm like, well, and then I, I did. I think that's so pathetic that I should be fired from the company. Is that I did not think to talk to him about it before as the owner or the person who runs the Cardinals. Right. I should be the first thing I've been trying to do. But I was really only concerned about his game. And he's a really good player. And it was like 100 degrees. He's like, hey, man, you got any water? I'm so thirsty. And I'm like, God, I'm so stupid. And then I handed his water, and he like, drinks half of it. And he's like, that's different. What's this water? I've never heard of it. And I'm like, man, Brian Bergdorf would kill me right now if I, <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> uh, so it was kind of funny because, you know, that's – and it, it, then now, like, so we, we did the, the evil thing, which is we, we sent him some water. To see if they liked it, and then we're gonna and they, everybody pays for it. Even like that, all the NFL players that we don't give it away. It's it's sold to him. So the he's like, I don't think we already have our own water, and we're not gonna do it. Like in three weeks without Defiance Fuel, the players like Where had a little is mutiny. This water, yeah. yeah, they had a little mutiny, and that's really that set us up. So then the, the Cubs became uh, the second team, and then the Diamondbacks are are next, and we're just constantly trying well, congrats to. Congrats to you guys. You drink. I have had it, and it. 
I notice for me, I just drink it faster. And I don't know why. Because it, I mean, it, I now know why. Yeah, but like when I'm drinking it, I'm like, whoa, no I water drink belly. that faster. Yeah, yeah. no water belly. Yeah. It's, it's quite remarkable science. And when I was asked to be a part of it, I'm like, you're kidding me, right? This is just water. He goes, this is not, not just, just water. I don't know, yeah. just water. It's pretty oh, fascinating stuff. Yeah. Favorite musical band, favorite musicians, how much, and how much does music play a role in your day-to-day? That's so fun. I've just never been a music person. Like, really? I ran a half marathon with no, no headphones, no music. Hmm. Now, I, I, I love me. I mean, I appreciate and respect it. Um, gosh, I saw Pearl Jam in Seattle for their oh. farewell uh, no concert. Probably the best ever. And I have to <sighs> honestly give my ex-husband credit for the turn on to Pearl Jam because I you know that was just not on my radar as a kid but uh, Eddie Vedder I mean his voice just you can't beat that they're remarkable live amazing and this for for this concert and I don't know if they're always that way depending on the tour but it was just him up there and he had like this big old bottle of wine and he just sat up there oh and was this him or was it well was they it per- had it but I mean he was just sort of the centerpiece you oh, know and wow. he just like very engaging with the audience and the back and forth. Um, and then I saw Garth Brooks when he was here for the, the flood, uh, mm-hmm. the flood fund relief. Rate and amazing concert too. So both of those are definitely two concerts that, that were well, that is, that, That's the thing that I love about music is like when you're talking about those two guys in particular, it's not just their music, it's their ability to connect with you when, you're, when they're on stage. For they sure. make you feel like... You're there, like especially when I mean I've seen Pearl Jam eleven times. I love, mm. and I'm going to see him on April second when awesome. they come here again. Yeah. You know, Eddie spoke to me for a large portion. He, he he like Axel handed the baton to Eddie Vedder, and Eddie Vedder then handed it to Maynard Keenan from Tool and Perfect Circle. Oh, or whatever. that's that's hard but, to beat. But I mean, those, <laughs> but like they step on the stage, and like one of the things that makes it so I can't imagine how cool it must be to be the, either one of those two guys because you're standing in front of 50,000, 40,000, 18,000 people and you just strum the guitar and everybody knows you're getting ready to sing and they sing it to you. It has to be one of the coolest feelings oh, of knowing that you've man, impacted yeah. people's lives like so much. Everybody's singing your song, you know, it'd be like going out there and like everybody's quoting your, you know, book for yeah. a line of your book or something, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, concerts to your, you were talking about earlier about sporting events and concerts and the energy that comes from that. And I'm, you know, just my personality is not to be in huge crowds and big stuff. But when mm. you're there in that moment, it's oh, yeah. undeniable, yeah. you know, whether I go out of my way to experience that. But when you do experience it, um, you get lost in it for, oh, sure, for sure. There, There's that transient place of like we're... You know, because there's the there's a book that was written called Stealing Fire by Stephen mm-hmm. Kotler and Jamie Wheel, and they're the part of the Flow Genome Project. And I'm as we're, we're both heavily in, induced <laughs> into trying to find flow as fast as we can, Absolutely. and as often as we can, uh, to understand like when when the volume gets up and the beats get just loud enough that it almost kind of knocks off your prefrontal cortex. And if the if the music's done right, it has a hypnotic ability to resonate with you and that you can kind of just, it knocks you out essentially. It it puts you in a place where you're just with the present time, which is one of the key factors of being in flow state is to be here now. Absolutely. You know, and it's not easy to always be here because we're always trying to either, we're either looking forward 
or we're disappointed in something that just happened, trying to figure out how we're going to make up for that yes. mistake. And being here non-judgmentally. Oof, yeah. And that's not easy for high achievers because they generally don't enjoy failing no. much. Yes. So that's, that's, a, that's a fascinating part of understanding what music does in live environments. So like my favorite band is Tool, and they just were here at the Bridgestone Arena. And as interesting as, as a young band, their, their music was more filled with the energy of youth and angst and mm -hmm. telling their story. But as you get to be 53, 54, they're not nearly as mad as they used to be. And now they're precise. Like the music was, I'm not even sure that it wasn't better than it was when it's on their, on the CD, so to speak. It was so good. And like, it is definitely hypnotic. And it's the power of music and sound that takes you out of everything else. That's why it never, it never dies. No, well, it's rhythm. And I, I say this to clients all the time. They, they talk about they just don't feel that great and their energy's off and they're not, you know, they don't eat all day and then they eat too much at night or they, you know, they can't get consistent with training. And I say, you're out of rhythm. Your body likes rhythm. It likes to wake up and go to sleep at the same time. It likes to poop at the same time. It likes to eat at the same time. And you know when your energy's best for working out because you're in a rhythm. Mm -hmm. You know, if I try to go work out in the afternoon, it's always a terrible workout just because my body's used to doing it in the morning. morning. You know, so it's, I think music just brings our body into rhythm and we all have a different rhythm. Right, you think about that—the zones of optimal functioning. Yeah. Right, you have low arousal. They're the guys that want to take a nap in the locker room before the game mm -hmm. or shut their eyes. And then you got moderate arousal. You know, maybe they got some Pearl Jam, classic rock going. And then you got the high arousal, and they got the heavy metal, Metallica, or some kind of hardcore hip hop. Yeah, going. that's right. And they're doing sprint workouts before the game, and they're doing crazy Dak Prescott, whatever that <laughs> dance thing is. I don't even know how. To define That's that. Tom House's <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, but they yeah. have, but you see across, if you were to look at a cross section of a team and how different people warm up differently, it's that they all have different zones of optimal yeah. functioning and you have to know your zone. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm a low arousal performer and I'm forced into a warm up that's high arousal, that's why I don't like team warm ups. Yeah, yeah. Right, because nobody needs the same. Everybody, and as you get older, you recognize that they don't do that. When your kids, you're all doing like the stretching circle yeah, and the passing. Yeah. But the what coaches don't realize is not every kid out there needs the same kind of warm up to get in the zone. Yeah, as it'll allow kids some time. And I think there's a balance, right? You can do some team warm up, but then maybe you give individual time. Mm -hmm. Hey, do what you need to do. If you need to go stretch, if you need to go sit on the bench quietly with a playlist, if you need to go run around and scream like a madman just to get the energy out, like yeah. what do you need to do? Yeah. Um, but to your point, it's about finding your rhythm. Yeah. You know? Speaking of flow state and how you like to get people to grasp that place, what are your beliefs on accessing that higher level of talent? Because everybody can find it. Mm. It's just... Under yeah, this is like you said, you have to understand like each person's got a little bit of a different trigger point to access it. But talk to us about the fascination that you have with flow state in performance, both whether it be musically or physically as it pertains to being in that place where everything is in super slow motion. Well, I think that's the just the enigma of it is I think we get in it 
it be, before we know it, and then we don't know what triggered it. So the replication of it, it's so hard. Yeah. And I think athletes that have been able to find that have just practiced it over time. And I think it comes down to all of those things we've talked about is what did you eat? What time did you go to bed? What did you do for your training that week? Did you down train? Did you do a, you know, a recovery week or were you in more of a high, you know, I think it's all the pieces. It's just like anything else. It's some kind of perfect chemistry you've created. And then you need to replicate that. So I think it's about putting those pieces in place. You can't just wing it. You know, I think a lot of athletes, they just, they don't recognize all the little pieces that are going into their preparation. It's really just morning of, day of, but it's it's more than that. Yeah. Like it's just about your whole training process, the periodization of it, mm-hmm. that you have these work and rest cycles, these training programs through the whole year you know i think you just got to find that perfect formula it's interesting because in in the in that flow genome project that they discussed the 17 triggers to flow state and the more dangerous the sport the easier it is to access it because the natural tendency of the body is to stay alive so surfers Mm -hmm. and the extreme mountain bikers they they get addicted to it to the point where it kills them you know the 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 free climbers yeah the rush of the precision that it requires to take take an 80 foot wave or to go straight up a rock wall with no yeah with no ropes is that the more dangerous it is the more locked in you get for because you have no other choice but right. it's the it's that addiction that you fall in love with that kills the surfers and the climbers well and to to use a a crude analogy but like with a drug addiction i mean it's the same thing it's like at some point you have to keep upping the ante Mm -hmm. to something more dangerous and more detrimental to get the same high that's right and unfortunately that does happen with that sport too and you know some sports lend themselves to that possibility more than others but you just you have to find the point of diminishing return, yeah. right? Stephen Kotler said in his in his book in multiple interviews, he did a great speech or like a little presentation at Google a couple years ago. And he said that we spent uh, five years researching flow and how to get to flow and how important it is for optimum performance. And then we realized quickly that we, we need to figure out how to get out of flow because the chemicals that are released into the brain, the six chemicals that are released into the brain that create it are all sold illegally on the street. So everybody is addicted to something. There's the, and that's what makes that that's the flow state mm-hmm. problem is that they had to teach people how to, once they had to teach them how to get there, they had to teach them how to safely get out of it because they get addicted to the dopamine or the oxytocin or the, you know, sure. or the anatomy, all of those chemicals. Somebody, everybody's addicted to something. Mm-hmm. And it's some people are the depressants. Some people are the uppers. Some people are that warm, fuzzy feeling that you get from being, you know, glorified, you know, it, those are the things that makes them really struggle when they're out of the game. Sure. And well, and then, you know, look at nutritionally, the, the sugar is more addictive than cocaine. Yeah. And now people are addicted to sugar and it's killing them from obesity, diabetes, heart disease, you know, all these things. So, I mean, our, our world is very much an addictive personality, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that there's so much stress and demand and noise and pressure and um, need to be better, more, 
faster, stronger, that mm -hmm. we look for ways to decompress and remove ourselves from that reality. And sometimes those choices are more detrimental than just living in the stress of day to day. No kidding. You know? So no kidding. Everybody's always looking for an easy out. Absolutely. An easy out until they find out that it ain't so easy. No, no, life's not easy. <laughs> and no, you know, I think that's I've really this last couple of months gotten into that ability to just accept where I am now mm -hmm. instead of constantly thinking it should look different or needs to look different or Brilliant. I want it to look different. I mean, yes, I think those are all good ways to motivate yourself and to maintain discipline and to always be growing and learning, but also the quiet of just being here now yeah. and saying, hey, I'm okay the way I am now. This is the way I'm supposed to be in this moment now. Mm -hmm. And believing that the path to where you're supposed to be next will open itself up, but yeah. you can't always force it. True. The more you force it, the more there's potential you're going to go down the wrong one, you yes. know, instead of just letting it happen. Mm -hmm. you know? I've noticed in your social media over the last two years, it has definitely gravitated toward your understanding of you in the, in the present moment. Absolutely. And I think that that's awesome. And one of the things that I noticed that I've never noticed before is that you've You've also touched on another one of my favorite nerves, which is wine. You you have <laughs> you, you like you you like to have a, a glass of wine and a, and a nice meal. And talk to us about one your favorite types of wine, and what is it? What does wine do for a meal for you? Mm. You know, I never. I think red wine for sure. I just had an aversion to for so long. I think it's one of those things you have to just kind of create a a palate for. Mm -hmm. Right, and an appreciation, and I think it makes you slow down for me because you don't you want to just sip it and enjoy the moment, mm -hmm. and it brings out the flavor of the food, and you eat slower. We're always in a rush, oh, yeah. you know, and especially having been an athlete, changing clothes in the back of the car, going to prom after the soccer game, and throwing this on and that, and eating whatever <laughs> shoved in my face, and you know, it's like my whole life I feel like has been a rush. Yeah. Um, in the sense of a time rush and I like to do things efficiently and fast and get it done and move on and not procrastinate and mm. I think that just you miss things yeah you miss the moment mm. and so I think that for me like wine says to me slow down enjoy the person across from you yeah. the meal in front of you um that this is a time to savor yeah so well, you, you, everybody evolves. We're all evolving, and I've definitely noticed your evolution. You're you're almost forty. How has life turned out for you so far compared to what you thought it was going to be like in that maybe just right before you graduated from college? Yeah, well, I think I thought I was going to be a uh, sports psychology consultant for a professional sports team. Mm -hmm. You know, just be hired on by the Titans to be their sports site consultant. And I think I noticed quickly that industry was not going to be that, mm -hmm. you know, that's a hard sell for a team. They have so much other focus that the mm -hmm. mental skill set is something that's going to be always kind of a peripheral. Mm -hmm. um, I also recognize my passion for learning and decided to just pursue on with a advanced degree. Um, 
got divorced this last year, so that was certainly not expected. I was married 10 years, so I think that that vision of what my life was going to be has shifted uh, in the last couple of years. Um, But I think that I'm I'm super happy with where I am. I think, you know, day day to day, I struggle sometimes with believing myself (laughs) when I say that. But I think that I I didn't ever envision myself as an entrepreneur and a business owner and an author and, you know, all the experience I've had have led to all those things. Mm -hmm. So to look back and regret or question or wish... I mean, you have to know that all those things are stepping stones to get you to where you are. And every change is not permanent. It's Mm -hmm. just creating a new change. Um, And so I say those things out loud, almost reminding myself of that, right? Um, But I do believe those things. And uh, just the opportunity to sit here with you today, I probably wouldn't be here if I hadn't gone through those things. Yeah, so true. I've always found, I've read something on, social media the other day that I thought was pretty profound, which is that everybody's excited about the wedding, but nobody's paying attention to what it's like to be married. And I think of all the things that when I look back on my, I'm 46, of all the things that I didn't get taught is what is it like to be married? What is the difference between the wedding? And then what's it like to be a a co-business partner of a familiar family situation that doesn't get taught anywhere. No. That's just like thrown to the fire and figured <laughs> out. Sure. And I really wish that schools would prepare kids more on an accounting and or like how to function in, in a balanced budget life. Yeah. Uh, are two really critical pieces that I have been baffled by which is why is that not taught? Because they're two of the largest fundamental staples of successful life, money management and the care of the people you choose to love. And we, I think one of the things that I did not grasp, and I try to talk about it when I public speak a lot, is the evolution of a human and how you will be lucky if the partner you selected evolves similarly to you. Because if they don't, and there's no necessarily, and that's not bad on the, either one of the yeah. partners, is each person's got their own vision. And as soon as one person's vision for themselves evolves in a different direction than the other, there's only one of two things that can happen. Somebody acquiesces to the other, or they go apart. Sure. No, that's a very good point. And to get past what would be considered failing at a marriage versus understanding the human evolution and you did not fail. It was just more of a situation that the evolution of you and your husband, you evolved in different directions and it created a a chasm or a schism, so to speak, that it wasn't, it wasn't worth sacrificing the other person's dreams for this Mm. and it's kind of a it's because in in the history of our evolution of humans that's considered failing divorce sounds like failure to a lot of people but as i think it's changing that it's it's not what i'm going to call accepted but it's if you can grasp the fact that it's 
an evolutionary situation and we only got one of these lives. And I think many people have suffered so long in unhappiness and the passing on the knowledge of like, honey, you don't need to be this miserable just for the sake of a contract, so to speak. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, keep evolving. Nobody has to be, you don't, nobody has to be persecuted over the failure, just evolve. And that's what I, what I love where you are is that you're not, it's not something that you're proud of, but what it is that you've evolved from it and you're, you, you understand who you are. It probably helped you become a better version of yourself and you're tidying up as you're evolving. And the next best thing is right on the way. For sure. And to not look at it as anything else other than a moment. Doesn't make you bad. Doesn't make you anything other than Tiffany breeding. No, you're you right. Know? And then it, thank you for, for saying that. I mean, just hearing it, it feels good. And I, I would agree. And I think that we, in our, in our process, Stuart and I are still great friends. Mm-hmm. And I hope we always will be. And I hope for everybody or anybody that goes through this that they can find that place. And I know there are different circumstances. I'm certainly not saying every divorce is the same scenario. But if it is simply because of a change in goals and perspective and growth and, and passion of where you want to go and where you see yourself going. Sure. And you know it's not right. It doesn't feel right. And the neither of you deserve to be unhappy. Yeah. Nobody, everybody deserves to find joy and happiness in this life. And if what you're doing isn't creating that, then do something different. different. You know, and yes, there will be some damage along the way, whether it's, you know, kiddos that are involved or sticky situations, but they are resilient and they see it mm. too. Um, and we didn't have children, so that certainly made made it easier. But we had a business together, sure. and it, it, that was hard to figure out and walk away from. But we did. We knew that it was the only choice mm-hmm. if either of us was going to eventually be what we were meant to be. Yeah. And um, and yeah, I mean, you're you're right. It's people I think get fearful of staying stuck, but think about what's the alternative. You know, what's, what's the alternative? The alternative? So, no doubt about it. Well, final question. Okay, I'm ready. Unless, of course, you say something so profound oh, that it sparks one well, more in me, which is very obvious, possible. Yeah, very possible. Jason Silva is another one. Part was originally part of the Flow Genome Project. Now he's broken off. He's come up with a, a very interesting statement that I've, I kind of really have put into my life. Hence the book, so to speak, which is he he said in, in one of his posts. Everybody is going to experience three deaths. The day that you find out you're going to die, the day that you die, and the last time anybody ever mentions your name. Hmm. What, are you, what are you passionate about to make your name and your legacy carry on for as long as it possibly can? I just hope that Every single person that I coach, that I touch, that I interact with feels that they leave better than they came in. Mm -hmm. That everybody remembers me as a positive, empowering influence on them. That even if there were times they hated me (laughs) and my tough love and my pushing and challenging and 
and prodding and educating, but that when they look back, they say, man, Tiff really made me see that. She mm. made me realize that, and I grew from that. Damn. And that's just the only legacy I can hope for is that people know that everything I do is because I want to help and better and empower and that I've done it with integrity. Sure. Well, you, you did exactly what I figured you'd do. You'd say something that make you want to ask you one more question. <laughs> you mentioned one, it's a kind of a hyphenated word, tough love. In a world we live in today where that's not widely accepted as the best way to coach my child. How dare you correct him like that? Or why would you say that to him? Don't, that's the truth. Don't let that truth hurt him. Tough love is a really powerful uh, mechanism because here at our school, the athletic director is the Hall of Famer, Ricky Bowers, and I've never seen anybody more perfect at delivering tough love with a velvet glove. Mm. Oh, I just rapped. Well, <laughs> we are we're rappers. rappers. <laughs> but he says things that are so true and so kind of gut punch you while he's putting his arm around you. The ability to tell the truth constructively in a way that motivates them to either prove you wrong, which actually proves you right, or that, that one little piece, that, that ingredient that you know how to poke somebody the right way to get them out of their limiting belief structure in their head, which is probably all that you have to tackle, largely what I have to tackle, is the walls that they have built up about what they think they can and they can't do. What does tough love mean to you? And give us an example of how you deliver it so that people out there want to feel like you're the person they're going to call on. I think that for me, the best way to deliver that is you can't do it out of the gate. You have to build respect, trust, rapport. You have to be authentic. Mm -hmm. You know, there's especially kids, they know when you're full of it. Yeah. So if you're not authentic in how you deliver something, they know. They know if they had a bad game and you come off the field and they're like, great job. I mean, I've said it to my no, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Don't say that. Tell so me. True. But can you give a directive and not just a beat down? You know, but I, so I think if it, it's the in the delivery of it and also in the relationship you form around that, you know, you can't do that out of the gate before they know you. Yeah. You know, but I, I think example of is, you know, I tend to do it with a bit of sarcasm too, where, you know, it's. I'm saying it, but they know it's with love and, mm -hmm. and jokingly, like, put down the brownie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the brownie. <laughs> uh, or, you know, just pointing things out to them, you know, holding up that mirror. You know, mm -hmm. usually when you get upset about something, when somebody gives you the truth, it's because you see that reflected in you. Yeah. You know, and so... But I, I think for me, it's kind of the, the whole John Wooden concept of you have to give 100% of who you are and be happy with that. For me, if I'm being honest and I'm being authentic, 
then I can't ever question my coaching mechanism. That's right. Because it's all I can do. And if I lie to you or I skirt the, the issue and you don't get results or I'm not real with you and you're not motivated and don't change and walk away the same as you came in, then I haven't done my job. Yeah. Because their success is my success. So and true. they're paying me for what they don't know they're paying me for. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think one of the things that I took away from uh, the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant was Kobe Bryant taught me something. He never, I never met him, but he made did this interview and he talked about conflict. And he said that if you want to be awesome, you have to address conflict ASAP as fast as possible and learn how to do it in a progressive and positive way. But the more you let conflict go, like as if it's going to go away or disappear, all it does is almost like alcoholism. It's doing push-ups and sit-ups. It's just getting stronger. And so all of a sudden, it's, it destroys a relationship. And I can imagine that would be something that you, you, have to, you have to dance around because you're in a more of in the, in the physical world mm -hmm. of it, is that you have to figure out when's the right time for me to like tell me that you're being a little soft. And when are you really just not doing good? Not feeling and, it. Yeah, yeah, not feeling it today. And that, to me, uh, that's what I took away from Kobe, was that I don't, I don't do face-to-face -face conflict very well because I'm, I'm like Oprah. I'm an Oprah Winfrey person. I'm like, I'm just going to put my arm around you, and I'm going to try to out-love that, that mm -hmm. moment. But that doesn't work for everybody, and I've had to evolve my Dr. Phil. Um, <laughs> I don't like to go there, but I've gotten to the point where I've gotten better at it because it's my responsibility to help these kids achieve their dreams and be the best that they can be. And as much as I don't like being Bob Knight or Dr. Phil, um, when I see that I have to be it, it takes me about 10 minutes of like prep time for my mind to wrap my head around. I got to put my red sweater on to get my Bob Knight on. But at the end of the day, we're coaches, we're leaders, and we have everybody's got a different style. Bob Knight, every once in a while, has to be Oprah. Mm -hmm. He might not want to be Oprah, but he definitely showed a little bit of Oprah this weekend. Uh, when he was, came back to Assembly Hall for the first time in 20 years, of, he was pretty welled up and hanging out with a lot of the kids that are no longer kids that he coached to greatness. And I thought that was really powerful, too, is to watch somebody who's known to be so hard and so mm. maybe too tough, especially he didn't, he didn't do a good job of evolving with the times for sure, but to watch how much it meant to him to be there with Isaiah Thomas and Benson and all those great players that he had. I can't imagine that was, a, that was probably a pretty – one of the more profound moments in his life to go back to a place he swore off. He'd never go back again, flipped him to proverbial bird. Sure. And then to realize he, oh, I guess forgiveness would probably be the, the big thing there. I'm sure he feels like he had to forgive Indiana. I'm sure Indiana had to feel like they had to forgive Bob Knight too. At the end of the day, it was a beautiful moment for forgiveness. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's, that's what I would want to leave the show with today is, there's a lot of moving parts to life. There's a lot of ways to go about it, but there aren't many ways to be successful. So to get, to be able to have the physical talent and then the disciplines of what you eat, how you think, and how you train is essential. How can my listeners get in touch with you to learn more about what you're doing and how they can take their game to the next level. And if they're not here in Nashville or they can't find a way to get with you, how can they get your book? Awesome. Um, well, first of all, thanks so much for 
the opportunity to just come and chat with you and talk to you. That was my, my pleasure. That was awesome. Um, so I am at Empower Performance and Elite Sports Medicine. My office is inside the Green Hills location, right off of Woodmont if you're here in Nashville. Um, but certainly you can contact me through their facility or my website is work with drtiff, so drtiff.com. And there's always on there just a link to get on the phone with me. It's a free 15-minute quick chat. So if you're not sure what I do or if you're interested and you just want to call and ask questions, we can jump on a call. Um, my book's on the website and Amazon. And, um, of course, you can always contact Virgil and he can get you in touch with me too. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that I've been around a lot of people, okay, and I've been around a lot of sports psychologists, a lot of trainers, and I can't say I've been around a lot of nutritionalists because that's kind of a new science, especially in the performance world. That now that I'm, you know, not just teaching golf only, I've got a lot of other hats that I'm wearing here at the school. The mere fact that you are expert level at three different things is, in my opinion, what separates you from everybody else. And I'm so glad to have you as part of my people that I know and people that I can call upon if needed because I think you're sensational. So thank you for coming here, and I look forward to seeing you many more times. Thanks, okay. My pleasure. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education.